This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are tuned into our board slash our OITE review series. And today we are continuing on with some pediatrics featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. Now, if you have not already, check out the podcast companion book. It goes along to all of these episodes. Uh, it literally has the notes for everything that we're talking about. It has some uh, pictures poorly drawn by myself, but it is there in case you all want to check it out. Uh, we will put the link in the description if you do want to check it out. And without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. You know, we we talked a little bit about this on maybe our basic science way back when, but what makes MRSA different from MSSA? So again, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus versus methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus. It's the MECA gene, M-E-C-A, which is transferred to the Staph aureus, which is essentially, it's a, a penicillin-binding protein with a low affinity for beta-lactam antibiotics. So when it's resistant, it has this MECA gene, it proliferates that gene, and now the beta-lactam antibiotics, which we know are like the, the penicillins, are not able to like really work on the cell structures of the bacteria. And so with MRSA, you're more likely to have increased hospital stay, an increased risk of DVT, more soft tissue destruction because it's a more aggressive and more virulent bacteria. And then it also has something called a PVL, which is a panton valentine leukocytin cytotoxin, which is associated with more severe infections. And what are some of the other organisms that cause these infections? And maybe like a, a quick little fact about them, either what's their class or or how do you culture them? Yeah. So you know, the King Elliot, and this is probably the third time we've mentioned in the past couple of minutes, that's going to be common. You know, if they give you something to a kid less than four years old, and again, you're going to diagnose that with the PCR test, tuberculosis, which is actually still common in a lot of third world countries or a lot of other countries. Also tuberculosis, again, that's going to be acid fast bacilli, Borrelia bugdorfi, or Lyme disease is the other way. I know I just butchered the last, the, that last word, but for Lyme disease, hopefully they'll give you some type of a scenario where they're having erythema migrans or having kind of these these lesions on their skin. You know, they be, might be having some knee pain or some shoulder pain or kind of this reactive arthritis. Again, this can be associated with cardiac arrhythmias. And for this, the first test you order is an ELISA test to test for the antibodies. And if that's positive, then you confirm with the Western blot. I think I missed a question on this when I was practicing, maybe last month or so. So I, I saw it on there. I was like, man, dang, that, we still got to know that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like sketchy micro. That's a long time ago. Also gonorrhea. So they give you a sexually act active adolescent. Think of gonorrhea. So you culture that on a chocolate bud agar. 
And then Candida or Coxoises, I'm not butchered that as well, but those are kind of just some fungus to, to know about. So what are the, I guess, the indications for operative treatment on these pediatric musculoskeletal infections? Similar to adults, you're looking for abscess formation. You're looking for either, a, if it's a consistent with septic arthritis, you obviously want to treat that sooner rather than later. I think we've moved away from that being a orthopedic emergency, but you definitely want to get to it within 12 hours because the cytokines that build up in the joint, it's not necessarily the bacteria acting on the joint. It's the cytokines that build up, cause all the inflammation and can cause chondrolysis. And then if there's a failure to respond to non-op treatment. So if you, you're trying something for a few days and it appears that they're just continuing to get worse or their CRP is increasing rather than decreasing, those are going to be operative patients. What you do want to do is if you do take them to the OR and they get worse several days later, you can consider repeating an MRI to assess for any development of osteomyelitis either or like a, a pocket of the abscess that you failed to evacuate or if this is a, a more severe infection such as like a necrotizing fasciitis or something like that. So definitely these the kids, because they're not diabetic smokers with heart failure, they tend to respond very well to kind of one-time treatment of these. And if they don't, something else is going on. They're either genetically immunocompromised, they have a different infection than what you thought you had to begin with, or the infection has spread and something more sinister is going on. So that's those are things to kind of keep in mind for the infections. And then moving on to these neuromuscular diseases, which are not my forte, but I'll do my best. <laughs> and I go back and forth between some ortho bullets and, and all of that to, to make sure I'm saying all the right stuff. But to, to start off, the main one we're going to see on all these exams is cerebral palsy. So what exactly is cerebral palsy? Yes, what this is, this is like a, a static encephalopathy due to some brain injury. This may be by damage, effectiveness, or, or some type of illness. And what this does is it leads to peripheral manifestations such as contractures and a lot of different things that these patients have. We'll talk about them here in a bit. And for those listening, if you want to deeper dive into this, you can go and listen to episode 22 with Dr. Pires Lozano on cerebral palsy. And I meant to mention earlier, but if you want to listen to some more on Clubfoot, you can go and check out our, our podcast episode with Dr. Gansudis. But back to, again, cerebral palsy. So again, it's a static encephalopathy due to brain injury, maybe due to damage, defectiveness, or, or illness. And again, at least these peripheral manifestations, a lot of musculoskeletal manifestations, such as contractors and different things. So what are, what are some risk factors for cerebral palsy? The kind of main ones that are going to pop up are low birth weight and prematurity. You can get intrauterine brain ischemia and kind of like an intrauterine stroke for the baby. And then there's these infections called torch infections, and it's a, an acronym for a group of infectious diseases that can be passed to your baby during pregnancy or at delivery. And TORCH stands for toxoplasmosis. The O is a cop out other. And then there's <laughs> rubella, cytomegalovirus, and herpes. And you know that they're not going to test you on the O part of TORCH, but 
They may bring up toxoplasmosis, rubella, cytomegalovirus or CMV or herpes simplex virus that can, that if those are happening in the mom and they get passed on to the child, they have a higher incidence of a cerebral palsy. And then, so what are some of the positive predictive factors for walking in kids with cerebral palsy? Yeah, so if they can stand and sit independently by two years old, that is a positive predictor for uh, these kids, for them to be able to walk with cerebral palsy. Again, staying and sitting independently by two years of age. A bunch of different classification systems for cerebral palsies, and we'll touch on a, a few of them because I saw them everywhere, and I was like, man, I guess we'll just do all three of them <laughs> or some of them. But what is the physiologic classification of cerebral palsy? So the main one I think that is, I think this is the most common too, is spastic cerebral palsy, which is, which means that they have increased tone or rigidity with rapid stretching. And so if if their muscles are brought out, like a, if you straighten their arm really fast, their arm gets very rigid and their muscles tend to have increased tonicity. And essentially they're trying to resist that motion of extending their elbow. Um, but these are also the ones that can benefit the most from orthopedic intervention because once you do either tendon release or Z lengthening or something like that for these kids, they that spasticity and that tone can essentially decrease and their joints can be more fluid. Then there's dyskinesia or choreoathetoid, which is ones that have involuntary movements. And we know that the choreoathetoid, I, I think of like choreography. So it's they're the ones that are moving. I think that's in like Huntington's disease and other forms of like Parkinson's syndrome and, and that sort of stuff where they get these choreographic like movements and dystonia. Then there's the ataxic ones, which basically means that there's decreased balance and decreased coordination. So the ataxic ones, they're the cerebral palsy patients that are either co walking constantly with a wheeled walker crutches or they are wheelchair bound and then the mixed ones which are mixed spasticity and mixed dyskinesia so they're going to be very rigid and have high muscle tone but the their arm or their leg is going to have those involuntary movements as well and one thing you will see in like a pediatric clinic and we have a cerebral palsy kind of center at our pediatric hospital here and the, all they talk about is what's their GMFCS and their the GMFCS score or classification system stands for the gross motor and functional classification system. And so what what is that and what is it really? This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS part one exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access Rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. Yeah, so this is a system kind of used to assess the level of function of the patient. It goes from 
one to five. So a GM, GM FCS level one is, you know, the kids, they can walk at home, they can walk outdoors, they can go up and down stairs without needing to use the railing, but they may just have some balance and coordination issues or just a little, a little bit limited, but they can pretty much do most things. For GMFCS level two, they may have some difficulty like walking with long distances and balancing between uneven uneven terrains or inclines. They can walk with some physical assistance, so they may need like a, a handheld mobility device possibly. So that's going to be two, so they're going to be limited on uneven surfaces. So for GMSE 3, they're going to need a wheelchair or a walker that's going to be required for long distances. So they can get around, but they're going to need some type of assistive device. They're going to need to kind of hold on to the railing with some supervision or some assistance. In level four, they're mostly wheelchair and walker dependent. So they kind of need that to get around, not just for long distances, but just for for the most part, for, for most, you know, activities. And in level five, they have no independent mobility. They're wheelchair bound. They have very poor head controls. So this is the worst classification. So five is going to be, again, no independent mobility. They're wheelchair bound. They can, they have poor head control. One, they can walk indoors. Two, problems with uneven services. Three, they need a walker or wheelchair limited for long distances. Now, I remember seeing a question on this some while ago. Uh, it's been a while, but I remember it, like how to know the difference between a stage two and stage three. So what is the anatomic classification of cerebral palsy? So a quadriplegia means quad, all four limbs are affected. There's whole body, which is four limbs plus, they call them bulbar issues or bulbar problems. And that's kind of issues with swallowing. There's hemiplegia, which is one side of their body is affected. And then there's diplegia, which is pretty much the lower extremities are affected more than the upper extremities. And diplegia is most often associated with prematurity, low birth weight, and then also periventricular leukomalacia. And I brought it up a little bit earlier in kind of the definition of spastic CP, but what what is spasticity? Yeah, like you mentioned earlier, so this is going to be a velocity-dependent increase in muscle tone. I think you had a great example earlier when you said somebody kind of pull their arm really quickly, they'll get their arm will get really rigid and spastic. So again, velocity-dependent increase in muscle tone. So what are some non, you know, they have a lot of musculoskeletal manifestations. So what are some non-surgical treatment options for cerebral palsy? So some of the the non-surgical treatment options really focus. So this is why these these big cerebral palsy centers have this gigantic multidisciplinary team. So they'll have physical therapy work with them to work with their either their muscle tone or their balance issues to help improve their gait. Occupational therapies used to address fine motor function and kids with cerebral palsy. I mean they. They can have a, like a, they can be mentally at the same age that they are and grow with that. And one thing I meant, I wanted to mention is, is when you first started talking about cerebral palsy, it's a, you called it a static encephalopathy, which basically means that it's not progressive, that when they have it, they have it, but it tends to not get worse per se. You don't get like more cerebral palsy as you get older. And so you're going to get like, you're going to use speech therapy for the kids if they have the bulbar involvement with their swallowing and their vocal cords, splinting and casting any contractures for their spasticity, bracing like AFOs or 
KAFOs, the knee, ankle, foot orthoses for those who have poor control of their limbs, distal to their knees, but they're still able to walk and, and support their bodies with their upper extremities. And then medications. I mean, we did a lot of Botox injections for the spastic muscles in our pediatric clinic. So you can use kind of muscle relaxing sort of medications to help improve their spasticity. And I, I talked about one, but what's another treatment for the medic, medical treatment for CP? Yeah. So just like you said, one is Botox or botulin toxin and the mechanism of how that works is actually blocks the presynaptic release of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. And you may have to know this, like the age old question back from med school where they show you the neuromuscular junction and they point to A, B, and C, and, they, and you have to know exactly where the medication acts. So this may be one of those that may be worth just taking five seconds and Googling a picture and seeing exactly where the neuromuscular junction is, if you don't remember from medical school. The other one's going to be baclofen, which is a GABA agonist. So what that does, it decreases the release of excitatory neurotransmitters. Again, it's going to be a GABA agonist. And what that's going to do is going to decrease the release of excitatory neurotransmitters. So there are a couple of different ways it can be given. It can be given oral. One of the downsides, you may kind of need to adjust the dose, but I know a lot of people are, are there, it is being used as an intrathecal pump. So it can be given intrathecal as well. It's given with a pump and it requires a little bit less sedation, which is, which is pretty, which is good. And, and it's used with non-ambulators as well. Another thing is diazepam. But for these pumps, these baclofen pumps, what are some complications associated with baclofen? You can get pretty bad withdrawal symptoms, which are pretty severe. I mean, I never personally saw a kid have a baclofen withdrawal, but they, they talk about it, I guess, almost something as severe as like coming off of like a opioid withdrawal or something like that, where they get febrile, they get kind of systemically sick, their spasticity can increase even further beyond what their original spasticity was. And then because of that spasticity, and they're just contracting all of the muscles in their body because their entire body is withdrawing from this, you can get rhabdomyolysis, which can then lead to kidney failure. And these then these kids are on dialysis and it's like, holy cow, like one more check of just like something to deal with for these CP kids. And so when they come off of baclofen, while orthopedic surgeons are not really managing that, it's good to keep in mind if you have a patient you operated on and they have a baclofen pump in the outside ER calls saying, hey, mom is concerned about this kid because this stuff's happening. What what do you want to do? Like, it's good to recognize some of those symptoms as it could be a withdrawal from the baclofen. And then they can get wound problems and just kind of ulcer formation and all of that sort of stuff. And so there's a, there's a treatment that not orthopedic surgeons would do, but neurosurgeons can, would do, but what's a selective dorsal rhizotomy? So that's one of the treatments for these patients that have cerebral palsy. What it does is it decreases the spasticity by cutting or severing the dorsal nerve rootlets between L1 and S1. So this is going to be useful for kids that are aged three to eight years old with spastic diplegia with the lower GMFCS, so a GMFCS grade of one or two. So again, three to eight years old with spastic diplegia with the GMFCS of one or two. 
but it does come with some complications. Some complications are scoliosis, monolithesis, as well as hip subluxation. So again, if you cut those nerves off, you may not get some of the feedback to your to some of the parts of your lower extremity, which is part of that hip subluxation. And again, also a little bit of scoliosis and spondylolisthesis. Those are all complications with a selected dorsal rhizotomy. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed Ortho Podcast. I know we talked a lot about cerebral palsy in this episode, so I hope you enjoyed it. And again, if you want to get a deeper dive, go and check out our episode with Dr. Pyres Lozano on cerebral palsy. Until next time. We hope that you all enjoyed this episode. We hope you're following along with our OITE slash podcast companion book. And we hope that you tell a friend about this. So without further ado, we will see you all next time.